0: The mission was to connect the horse world because horse people were so disconnected and we wanted to reach every corner of the globe. We wanted to reach every country, every person, every kind of horse person. But mostly we wanted to create connections between people through this thing that we share. And we thought that conversation would be the best way to do that.
1: Hi guys, welcome back to Pegasus Podcast Series, Equine Entrepreneurs. Today, we are chatting with the entrepreneur Helena Harris, the host of the ever-popular Stall and Stable Podcast. And perhaps more excitingly, Helena was actually one of the two founding members of the Horse Radio Network. So in this podcast, Helena sits down with Jen and I to discuss the origins of the Horse Radio Network and the entrepreneurial journey she and her co-founder took as they built the Horse Radio Network into the American equine media powerhouse that we all know and love today. We will cover how the Horse Radio Network got started, how they make money, and the trials and tribulations of owning and managing an entertainment company where not everyone is as entertaining as they think they are. And while I do harp on about the Horse Radio Network, this podcast also dives deep into Helena's work with her very own podcast, The Stall and Stable Podcast, which is very popular here in America. So sit back, enjoy, and hopefully you'll pick up some nuggets of knowledge to help you on your very own equine entrepreneurial journey. All right, team, we will see you on the other side.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exciting, though. Well, as as a fox hunter, which I'm sure we'll get into... I'm sure that's probably something that you're always actively doing. It's like, oh, this could be a good path
0: to go down or like, that looks like some good logs to jump over. Absolutely. It's actually more like knocking on people's doors, asking if we can ride through their property. <laughs> do they say yes oftentimes? Uh, yeah. You know, when they say yes, they, it's a very enthusiastic yes. Um, and when they say no, it's like wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> 20 horses galloping through their property. Um, but I, most people do say yes. That's good. That's good. For those that aren't familiar with your podcast, I
2: think it's best to start off with talking about who you are and how you got started with your podcast, The Stalin Stable.
0: Podcasting, I say, is the art of conversation. And I think that um, horses are my medium, I guess. You know, if you pick any horse person or you meet them on the street, there is no doubt you could have a full on conversation with this person. And even if you have completely different opinions about things, you somehow become connected. You somehow become friends. And so, podcasting to me is an extension of the nature of horse people in general. We like to talk about horses and we like to talk to each other about horses. Uh, podcasting started for me back in 2007 when I worked for Bit of Britain. Which is an eventing catalog, or it was a print catalog at the time. And a friend of mine, a colleague, and I started a podcast called The Talking Equine Show. Right. Right? It was basically a marketing channel for Bit of Britain. And we started to, it was basically eventers, but we expanded a little bit into some other disciplines.
1: What year was this? Um,
0: This was 2007. 2007.
1: Wow. How was it? How difficult was it getting your hands on the correct equipment and stuff? Because these days, obviously, especially with coronavirus, um, there are a million YouTube videos out there, et cetera, to teach someone how to set up a podcast, etc. 2007, podcasts were hardly, I think Joe Rogan was still like in his first few podcasts. So how did
0: you- Oh, he wasn't even around. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how,
1: how, did, how did you, one, come up with the idea to start a podcast back in 2007? And how did you learn how to actually do that?
0: Well, I came from a technology background. So I'd been working in the software industry for a long time. Right. So other than the actual recording equipment, uh taking a file that was just an audio file and getting it out to the internet was not something that was new to me. Uh my colleague Glenn Hebert, now known as Glenn the Geek, America's Horse Husband, mm-hmm. he also had a technology background. So between the two of us, we could hack our way into just about anything. Right. What we didn't what we didn't have experience with was um, I mean, it's easy to just sit in front of a microphone and I mean, the technology was bad at the time and so was our sound, mm. but we had 12 listeners. So like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we were the first in the space. So anybody who was able to listen to the show was just excited that there are, the, here are these two people on the internet that are talking about horses. Um, so there were some bumps along the way, for sure. We had some learning to do, but 13 years later, we're. We're still, <laughs> there's still a lot of bugs.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Different kind of bumps. But you're, yeah, you're right. There was, the technology was not easily available. We bought some $30 microphones off of Amazon. Mm. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> some earbuds. <laughs>
2: and yeah. And
0: we plugged right in. We had a mixer. Actually, at the time I had a USB uh, mic and I plugged it right into my Mac.
1: Mm. Right. So
0: that's you know, how we did it.
1: Shockingly. They have – the technology actually hasn't come that far. Like, yes, the microphones are better, but most people who get into podcasting these days, if they don't want to splash out and spend the big money on the proper stuff, are still just buying basic microphones that plug into a USB in the side of the Mac, which is quite amazing considering it's been 14 years.
0: Yeah, I I I I choke a little bit when you say that because I have finally spent the money on some equipment that's pretty nice and um I think one time we had some issues and I or I was traveling and I had to plug in a USB mic and I was like oh, it was horrible. <laughs> mm. Do you do you often do remote
2: interviews or will you have to take all the equipment and travel to someone to do something in person?
0: I try not to take my equipment away because the little studio that I have in my home office is soundproofed. It's it's quiet. I mean, we've got felt on the ceilings. We've got fabric on the walls. We've got foam on the floor. Sure. So I try not to take my equipment with me, but I can. I can record with my iPhone if I need to. The Most of my guest segments are done remotely. Yep. And we've used Skype for... Most of those 13 years, wow. which I know a lot of people aren't a fan of, but it all depends on how good your internet connection is. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, it is kind of nice know now though, that because of the pandemic, a lot of the horse world, a lot of the world in general is now comfortable using Zoom. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of nice to see my guests.
1: Absolutely. Right. All right. So you've been doing it most of this time without the visual, just the,
2: the audio, just
1: the over the phone sort of thing.
2: Yep. How has yep.
1: how has the experience of interviewing someone changed drastically in terms of your ability to get them to open up as a result of being able to see them?
0: Well, I mean, look at me. I'm like a happy person. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, let's talk. You know. Yeah. So it's a lot easier. I, you don't have that hump to get over when you're talking to someone on the phone because they were, especially in the early days, people were like, "What's a podcast? And who are you? And what do you want me to say?" Right. And you think even people who were like, "Oh yeah, I've done." Interviews before I've done podcasts or I've done radio shows. As soon as you say hi, welcome to the Stone and Stable Show. They're like, uh, blah, yeah. <laughs> da, yeah. So being able to see somebody, I think, uh, disarms everyone. It puts puts you in a more comfortable yeah, place. It truly feels like a conversation versus, okay, now go
2: through your resume and uh-huh. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions to see if you will be accepted for this position. So <laughs> I, I totally understand. Right.
1: Uh, so so yeah. I, I interrupted you. You said, so in 2007, you were working at this uh, publication and you decided to start a podcast.
0: Yes. Yes. And we had, I'll tell you a really funny story. If I can make it quick, I will. One of our first guests, I think it was like our second guest ever, um, was David O'Connor, who, right, multi-gold medalist, amazing guy. Wonderful, wonderful man. The interview was phenomenal. It was an hour long. We were so happy with it. As Glenn and I go to put the show together for publication, Glenn calls me. I'm doing all the marketing stuff, getting ready to promote it. Glenn calls me and says, we have a problem with the audio from David's interview. I was like, all right, well, what? And I'm thinking we're techies. We can figure this out. Right. He said, we have no audio. Oh, bummer. (laughs) I said, all right, this is a joke and I'm getting all hot. Like I'm starting to sweat. What do you, what do you mean? He said, I forgot to hit the record button.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think everyone who makes a podcast does that once or twice and, and never <laughs> makes that mistake again. See, I
0: would have thought it'd just be once. You only make that mistake once. <laughs> so, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did not tell our boss. We did call David's people quietly and asked if it was at all possible to re record. And David himself was like, no problem. I understand stuff happens. We're horse people. We're used to being flexible. And he re-recorded the entire conversation. In fact, it was even better because we kind of all knew what to expect the second time. Right. Had a practice run. He was so gracious. It was great. Oh, it was
2: yeah. That's too good.
1: Out of interest. Yeah. I've I've wondered about this before. Is a conversation better the second time? Or is it harder? Or is it does it do you think the product turns out worse? because it feels less organic.
3: Hey, are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. You can even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders, who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www.thepegasus.app. That is www.thepegasus.app.
0: It depends on who it is. So if it's someone who's a really good talker, someone who... Can articulate ideas and is passionate about, like, has a lot of passion for what they do, then the conversation is just as good the second time. Yeah, it's it's nuanced in slightly different ways, but the passion and energy is what makes the conversation good. If it's someone who's not comfortable either with, uh, you know, public speaking or talking about a particular topic, then it feels a little more forced. Yeah, it's 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 almost more robotic the second time. Mm, yeah, interesting.
1: Because I was thinking because. He, like exa- exactly as you said. Like on the one hand, you feel if if the person's not very comfortable, they feel like they're trying to recreate the magic of the first interview, and they're 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 stressed and they're not concentrating, or they're, or they're concentrating too hard. Whereas if you're someone who is relaxed and is a good speaker, like you know the point you made last time, mm-hmm. but now because you're doing it again, you can say it better. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you've done a rehearsal. Now I can articulate it perfectly. I can really make the point in a way that makes it sing. And I can imagine the interview being better in some cases.
0: Yeah. It is. And like like I said, it all depends on the person and the energy that they're bringing to the conversation. Do you
2: have a typical SOP when you do have new guests onto the show? Is it something where if you haven't met them before, you like to have a conversation with them ahead of time just to be able to loosen them up and kind of get them used to this endeavor if they haven't done it before? Or is it like, all right, we're jumping on in. We're having this conversation. Let's go.
0: Most of the time, we're just jumping on and having the conversation. But what I've learned in my years of doing this is that um, because a podcast is a very intimate experience for the listener... Um a a voice that's difficult to listen to or audio that doesn't have good quality can really ruin your relationship with the listener. So even though a guest may be very knowledgeable and a great person, sometimes they're not a great speaker. Yep. And I need to know that now before I sit down for an hour-long conversation with them.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's it, it is so I yeah, it is a um it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it, in the sense of. In many cases, you're doing them a favor, like depending on who they are and what they're doing, especially if they're trying to get their name out there, like you are doing them a favor, but because they've given you their time, you feel like they're doing you a favor and, but you are, but you also know that they fit into a library of your podcasts and you don't want to lose listeners because they were terrible, but you don't want to just not publish it because they gave you their time which most people think is the most valuable thing on the planet. So it's a really <laughs> it's as a podcast host it's a really interesting dynamic of if they're bad, which is I I think quite rare, but if they are bad, you're like what do I do here? Yeah.
0: You edit. Yeah. <laughs> That's <what> you <laughs> I my job um I do a lot of the post production still because I'm a perfectionist when it comes to how I want the conversation to flow. And sometimes again, it's an intimate conversation. It's authentic. So you don't want to over edit. So it feels too processed. Mm. Um, But you also want to take out anything that's distracting for the listener. Absolutely. So, so editing is a great way to get your point across. You know, like I said, it's, it's a piece of artwork, so it needs to be digestible to your listener, to your consumer. And so, yeah, if, If, um, I've never completely remastered a conversation to fit a guest's inadequacies, but I have cut out a lot of, you know, I've taken a 45 minute show and cut it down to like 20 minutes. Yeah. Right.
1: So that only those zingers come through.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then they and then the listener listens in and they're like, wow, they're just on it every
0: single second. This
1: person is brilliant.
0: Switch. They're coming on our show next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, I sound great. I should do more of these. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it took me four days of editing. Yeah, 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 yeah. so Did you do
2: the post-production and editing back in 2007 when you started or is that
0: something that you just picked up recently? That's something that I started to do about four years ago. So after the Talking Equine Show, Glenn and I went our separate ways. Um, he went to go work in Kentucky, and um, I continued on with Tack of the Day. And um, we so we started something called the Horse Radio Network, which I don't know if you guys know about HRN. So we started with two shows on the network, and I think there are 18 or 20 now. Oh, wow. So at the time, when we were building these shows, we were building the network, uh, Glenn and I didn't really do much editing. We were primarily the hosts. We, had, we were strategic and creative directors, but we, we didn't get into the nuts and bolts of producing the show other than the front-end stuff. When I decided to spin off my own show, Stall and Stable, uh, it was sort of encapsulated. I was wearing many hats and had to do a lot of the post-production stuff myself in order to get it launched. And I discovered that I really enjoyed the process. Right. I've been a creative. I started my career as a creative person in marketing and communications, lots of design, lots of coding and all that. So um, the creativity part of reshaping a conversation was a lot of fun. I don't know that I'll ever let all of that go. Yeah. I do outsource some pieces of it now, but the... Cadence of a conversation, the important pieces, all of that, the tone, the artistic side of it, uh, I still hold on to that. Yeah, sure.
2: When you you started the Horse Radio Network, what was your objective in creating it? Was it something that you were looking to speak to uh, the business, to the rider? Has that changed over time, perhaps?
0: It has not changed over time. The mission was to connect the horse world because horse people were so disconnected. And we wanted to reach every corner of the globe we wanted to reach every country, every person, every kind of horse person. And um, so, yeah, we wanted to be the voice of the horse world, but mostly we wanted to create connections between people through the thing that we share. And we thought that conversation would be the best way to do that. Um, so 13 years later, you know, there's something for everyone. So if you're an inventor, there's a show for you. If you're a dressage rider, there's a show for you. If you um are a rainer, you know, whatever horse discipline there is, we've got a show for you. And, and they're starting to mix now. You know, so when you've got one network that has a show that covers these niche topics, then you have crossover listeners. Yeah, sure. And, and how does that work too? Can anyone
2: at this point, if they say, you know, there's a, a Western discipline and they want to start releasing podcast episodes about various facets of the Western world, would they go to the Horse Radio Network and say, hey, I have this podcast idea, but I don't want to do all of the hosting and the post-production stuff. Can you help me with that? Or like, what, like what does that partnership look like?
0: Yes, um, there's different flavors of that. We can produce an entire show. Um, we can, you can do your show and give it to us and we can put it on the network. You know, it all depends on what your budget is. Do you have sponsors? But absolutely. I mean, it became very clear early on that Glenn and I couldn't do 20 shows by ourselves and we would start to recruit other hosts and that worked out really well. And those hosts did such a good job that they would then bring on sponsors. So, um, but it becomes a lot. There's a lot of um, details that you have to keep track of. So when someone else can do that, if, if uh, a show owner or a host, or they want to do as much of it as they can and just send us the raw files, we package it up real nicely, put it on the network and distribute it for you. Some people like, I want to do this. And I, all I know how to do is press a button. That's fine. We can help you with that too.
1: Yeah, right. I, I want to get back to this. I, I didn't realize that you were one of the founders of the Horse Radio Network. So- can you go into a bit more detail about, um, how you actually started it? Like, like, cause I mean, it's now, you know, a probably, I, I think it is, and correct, tell me if I'm wrong or right, but the most prominent, um, you know, media channel, I suppose in the equestrian world in America, especially possibly the world, because I don't think any other country is, is as advanced in its, um. Uh, podcasting, yeah. podcasting ecosystem when it comes to the equestrian sports so in many cases and so in many ways like rather than thinking of it as just a network like you went through the startup life cycle of starting a business realizing you couldn't do it all how do we outsource this how do we pay the bills so can you go into a bit more detail about what that experience was like of starting the network and when you realized you had to grow it and then managing people who were sending you stuff and. All that hassle.
0: Yes, yes. It's like any other small business startup. You you have to start the strategy was to do one thing and do it very well. Yep. And then scale up from there. And the thing that we could do was talk. So we started out with two shows. One was the Stable Scoop Radio Show, which was just a general, general topic, horse, whatever it was happening in the horse world. We focused on news and major events. And then the second show was the World Equestrian Games. So 2010, the WEG was in Lexington. And that proved to be a big launching pad for Horse Radio because everybody was paying attention to to the WEG, right? And we were covering it and we were talking about it. And then when it was over, we were talking more about it. Um, So creating the content, having a product, developing a product was the first thing that we needed to do. So that was the Stable Scoop radio show and the World Equestrian Games. So we just needed to get, on, get in front of the mics and start talking to people and creating content. Once we had our product, we then had to go and shop that around to advertisers and sponsors because that was the business model that we knew at the time. It was the only business model we knew at the time. We didn't have Patreon. We didn't have subscription services, yeah. right? Um, crowdfunding wasn't a thing. So we went to trade shows. We went to events. We went to horse shows. We went to clinics. And it was just the two of and you we, at this point. Uh, it was me and Glenn and his wife Jennifer.
1: Right. Wow. And, and were you were you like, were you writing any of the content, or were you just literally watching the World Equestrian Games and then having enough um, subject matter expertise in uh, different equestrian disciplines that you could just riff and talk about it off the cuff?
0: Off the cuff. We never write scripts.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah
0: ever. We have show notes, um, like internal show notes, which is just a guide so that we don't forget to insert a commercial or take a break or everybody knows what the guest's name is and all that. But the, and, and, you know, kudos to Glenn, cause I wanted to script a little bit. I wanted a little bit scripted, but Glenn was like, no, this has to be completely off the cuff because this is what makes podcasting different than radio and other broadcast media. Yeah, It's very personal.
2: Well, so you, uh, you were taking your you were you were going to various okay. events and conferences and getting right. the word out. And were you specifically doing this for the podcast, or were there yes? Okay, so at that point in yes. time, because this was in the early stages of podcasting, were people looking at you like, "What do you mean to be on a podcast?" But like,
1: yeah, oh, and what exactly is the Horse Radio Network? They were yeah. like, so do you have an office? Do you have a like a studio or?
0: Well, we were separate at the time. So Glenn was in Lexington. I was in Boston. Um, we did hire a... Uh, so we, he and Jennifer and I got the network up and running. when We knew that we were going to do just two shows, but we also knew that we needed a scalable strategy. So rather than just calling it a horse podcast or the Stable Scoop show and the WEG show, we came up with a name that was broader. Yeah, And so Horse Radio Network was born. And we knew that we... Of course, because horses, you can niche down because of all the disciplines. We knew that there was potential to create spin-off shows. So that we would go to like trade shows and we would actually, so this was a, a really important part of our development is we'd say, come and sit down at this table, sit in front of these microphones, talk to us about your product. Mm-hmm. It's free. There's no charge. And because it's a really cool conversation, no one else could... Um, no one else was merchandising their products in this way at the time. So the folks that we were talking to at these trade shows were like, somebody called me. They heard about my product on your podcast, right? Because the relationship between the host and the listener is so powerful that when Glenn and I, or Jamie or Jennifer, when we would talk about a particular product, the, we could say, yep, that's not going to work. We interesting, but no, and it's not going to work right now. Or, Hey, that's a really innovative idea. We see that solving a bunch of problems. I'd like to try it. Or we think that has a powerful place in the horse industry. And that's how influencing began in, in horse podcasting, right. equestrian podcasting. Oh. Uh, so, But I will tell you, there's still today, 13 years later, there are still equestrian businesses, equine businesses that don't get podcasting. They don't really know what it is, and they don't know the power of it as a medium for selling.
1: Yeah, I mean, over the years, as I mean, I'm because Horse Radio Network now, as you said, has like twenty plus shows, so the audience is quite diverse. But for for the retu- uh, routine listeners that you have, and the listeners that cross disciplines, etc., are you finding that um, the main audience is younger because they're the ones who get podcasting? Or are you finding that they're actually older because they, it's been after 15 years, they've actually figured it out?
0: I think that they're older. Um, You know, there's a lot of distractibility in the younger generation, the Gen Z, because they are more visually oriented. They've got TikTok, they've got Instagram, YouTube kind of blossomed in their generation. So I think millennials, Gen X, and yeah, even some boomers now are getting in on it. Um, so I think the top of the bell curve is probably from um, I'm going to say the older generation. To me, it's younger, mm-hmm. but to the rest of the world, you guys, the older generation has. I'll tell you why podcasting be, as it, because it's audio only for the most part um, is great for people who are pressed for time. Yeah. And we're all pressed for time. It. It's difficult to sit down at the end of the day or to sit down in the middle of the day and watch something to focus on it. But you can put your earbuds in, you can listen, you can learn, you can be entertained, you can be connected anywhere. In the car, at the gym, mucking stalls. I don't listen when I'm riding, but I know some people do. So uh, the, I think that the younger generation, the younger people are a little more visually oriented simply because they have more time right yeah it's interesting
1: right. yeah, absolutely I mean when we got into when we decided to do our podcast, it was because of that very fact we were like of all the mediums we can think of, if you think of the average um working professional in the equestrian world from five a m to eight p m they're busy yeah and now a lot of, but a lot of that busy work is not social work it's 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 individual busy work such as exercising a horse or mucking stalls, et cetera so they are i we assume and it is proving to be the case as we've grown our audience is that they are looking for something to keep them entertained while they go about for lack of a better term chores
0: so the word you you chose the word entertain and i think that there's space for entertainment but i think there's also space for learning yeah i think podcasts are very very powerful tool for learning
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, yeah. We're big audiobooks fans too, so <laughs> kind of goes
0: hand in hand. But absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's space for it. you know, there's all the the crime series and serial, and you know, This American Life. I've been listening to NPR podcasts. They pretty much invented the podcast. But um, you know, in talking to, so I have I have a huge horse book library, huge, and I have a bunch of them, a bunch of books that are unopened because I don't have the time or the energy to read them when my day is done. But if I could listen to that on audio. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Whether again, it's for entertainment or for learning, putting something in your ear is far more efficient, especially for horse professionals.
1: Right. So you decide to take, this, you decide to take the Horse Radio Network in its infancy on the roadshow, and you are going around to the trade shows and you're asking people to come speak to about their product. So, that is kind of the first time it sounds like that the Horse Radio Network steps out from being just a couple of friends recording a podcast and first step towards becoming like a proactive business effort. Where money is being invested to go out and recruit customers, for lack of a better term, and recruit people to be on the podcast. So what was the next phase of that journey for the horse radio network from interviewing people at the uh at tables at roadshows?
0: The model hasn't really changed. And the the podcasts that we started with were not the intent was always to develop a business. So we both, Glenn and I both came from corporate careers. So we knew about what I'm was heavy in product development. He has a strong sales background. So we knew what we were getting into. Um, so when we started it, we set a business model that we knew could scale. We didn't want to have to keep reinventing ourselves or our process every couple of years. Um, but what happened is the, and you know, in 13 years, the industry has gone up and down quite a few times. And so we got to a point where, yes, we got a few sponsors, all right, well, a podcast really the ideal time frame is under 45 minutes. How many ad how many sponsor spots can you put in a 45-minute show before you anger or you know turn off your listeners? So then we had to add another show. Right. Okay. Interesting. Then we so that's so sort of, that's kind of how it worked. Here we've got these two shows, we've maxed out our ad revenue for them. Let's do two more shows and let's do two more shows. And then we maxed out there. We can't do any more shows ourselves. So So that's when we started to produce for other people. Were you the
2: same – you are the same host for all the different shows. It's just each show was a different topic. Is that right?
0: That's how it started. But the idea was to put some feelers out and see if any of these new shows, these spinoffs, had traction. Right. And once we launched them, once we we got them going, we would hire hosts who were perfect – for that show. So how
1: many, how many shows did you get to just the two of you before like ad revenue aside, the ratio of ad revenue to podcasts, you just realize we can't physically do just to, the two of us can't physically can't keep, keep doing all these shows.
0: <laughs> so, well, Glenn decided, um, Glenn is, is he's got all these wonderful ideas and I'm the one who put some structure around them. Uh, he decided to do a daily show. We were doing weekly at the time. Wow. And then when we, we would introduce a new show, we would introduce it once a month. Or if it, we thought it was really going to be popular, we would do it twice a month. He decided to do a live daily podcast.
2: In addition to the so other shows.
0: Correct. Ooh. So he was like, do you want to do this with me? And I said, I have a two-year-old. I I can't, I need to give her breakfast because we were recording at like seven o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning.
1: Yeah. Because you have to, you have to spend all day producing it.
0: Yeah. So we hired Jamie Jennings and she became the co-host of horses in the morning. And that really ate up a lot of energy. So all of the other shows, the eventing radio show the we didn't do the dressage radio show driving, um, world equestrian games we were burning out pretty fast and so but we were growing pretty fast and so our listener base was growing and from the listener base we actually that's how we were recruiting hosts
1: yeah absolutely employees yep so um so how many so i mean how how did you go about finding hosts so you said you got the host from your listener base But there's a big difference between finding someone who's willing to do it and finding someone who's got the charisma to be able to do it and actually hold an audience. So what was it like the first time you went looking for some hosts? And then I'm sure there was a few awkward conversations along the way where you had to turn them down because they tried it and you were like, I don't think they have the charisma.
0: (laughs) Glenn was really good at the turning people down part. <laughs> he was like, yeah, no, this isn't this isn't going to work. Well, we would they would call in and they would leave voicemails. And I would listen and I'd go thumbs down or thumbs up. No, no. You you develop just like you have a good eye for something, I have a good ear and so does Glenn. But he would say, All right, we've got 20 voicemails. I need you to listen to them. And they're only about, you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds apiece. And you can tell pretty early on, within the first five to 10 seconds, whether or not someone has the tone of voice, the cadence, and the real interest. Because some people are like, This is cool. I want to do this. But it was a me, me, me sense to their voice, right? Versus someone who. Genuinely wants to talk about horses. Yeah, share their knowledge, share their energy. You can feel that. Yeah, right. when you first hear them. Yeah. So we did a lot of voicemails, and we had a few. Um, we had a few hosts who were great on the mic, but turned out to be I don't want to say bad business owners, bad producers, bad hosts. They didn't realize that this is a small business. You become the proprietor of your show. Right. When you're the host, right? You're responsible for putting on a good show. That means you need to show up on time. It means you need to be prepared. It means you means you need to be hydrated. Yeah. It means tell who's ever in your space that you're recording, you're on air. Right. right. There's a professionalism that's that's important. And it's just like any other business. When you bring that professionalism into what you're producing, that raises the bar, it raises the level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and there is, it's interesting that there's a certain thing about um, podcasting and finishing a show. It's kind of like, it reminds me of that feeling of when you're young and you're in school or university and you finish an exam and you walk out of the exam and you feel like relieved of the responsibility. And I can imagine, and, and podcasting is kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, like I've, I've done it for the week. Like it's done. And then it creeps yes. up on you again, and you've got to go through the whole cycle again. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who, if they're not committed, do it once and will be like, that was fun. I like this. I could do it. And then by the third time, they're like, oh, my God, it's like having an exam every week I have to prep for. I don't like this. I don't, yeah, like, it's a lot of work. I don't like having to fit it into my schedule and... <laughs>
2: I think there are it's so many podcasts out there too that aren't necessarily spectacular to listen to and I think that also might be why some people don't take it as seriously or as professionally because the bar the barrier to entry is actually quite low. I mean you can start it up pretty quickly and record your voice and yeah you know, have it up on Buzzsprout and Spotify with not too much you know strife to get there. So I think it's just created this environment where it's like, well, everyone's doing it. It's like having an Instagram account. Well, you can have your stuff up online and it's not necessarily good, but it's there. Right. But you really stand out when you put in the time, as you said, to be able to prepare and to have the right setting and be able to talk to the, the, the people before the guests beforehand to understand, is this really going to be the right fit? for the mission that we're trying to accomplish with this show.
0: Yeah. You're spot
1: on. Right. So, all right. So you, you start to get some, um, so you start to find some hosts, you're listening to the voicemails, Mm -hmm. you find a few hosts that actually have the, uh, the capacity to hold a show. And so what's this, what's been the story? How long, how far into horse radio network was this? Like what year was this?
0: Um, let's see, this was, uh, wait, we're in 2021. Holy crap. Okay. So t- 2009, well, 2010 was the World Equestrian Games, and that really put us on the map. So then 2011, 2012, we really started to add new shows. 2013, 2004. So every year we added like a new show. Yeah. Um, and the the thing that we focused on the most was the dynamic between the hosts. Yeah. There had to be chemistry between the hosts, you know, or the, what Glenn likes to say is that, Listeners come for the content, but they stay for the host.
1: Yeah, it's very true. That's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yep. So that and, and so we so and the topics, you know, like we recently added um, so Stacey Westfall's show is now on Horse Radio Network. So some people are producing their own shows or creating their own shows and they're being distributed by the network. Um, those still need to be vetted. We're not going to take junk. If, if, if you have lots of vocal fry and you, you sound like a valley girl, uh-uh, you're not coming. <laughs> the worst thing in the world is when I'm like, oh, here's a great podcast. I love this content. I can't wait to listen to it. And the host has an awful voice. Uh. I get so That's mad. That's like
2: us with audiobooks, actually. We have turned down many an audiobook based on who is narrating it. It's like, I can't
0: listen to yeah. this for 12 hours.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can't listen to it for 10 minutes.
0: Yeah. Like, I really want to listen to this. I really need to know how to do a leg yield. And I, and, but you, you suck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah,
2: And and are these – are you talking about for people who want to be hosts on their own show and then have that be on the Horse Radio Network or are you talking about the guests that you bring on or perhaps both?
0: The guests, um, not so much because usually the, when you're doing your research and you're trying to find a good guest, that they're an expert in the field. So they're articulate at least about the content mm-hmm. and the topic. Sure. Um, so even if their voice is a little off, there are things that you can do in post production to make it more palatable to our listeners ears but it's hosts of people who produce their own shows or i don't even say produce people who record their own shows yeah monotone voices you know one of the, my famous quotes is just because you can doesn't mean you should yeah and you know there's a lot of stuff that i do really poorly And I'm like, please, please, friends, family, tell me. If I'm not good at something, don't tell me I'm good at it. Yeah, Yeah.
1: don't lie to my face. You're not not doing me any favors. That's
0: that's why it's good having
2: a co-founder to keep you in check because it's like, "Eh, you can do this better. We we,
0: we keep each other very humble. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly. You are. You guys are just like Glenn and I were ten years ago, uh, eleven years ago. It's good to have the balance. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely
2: helps. It helps make both of you better and improve and learn. And we both have different skill sets too. And I'm sure it was probably very similar. Like you said, you he had these ideas, and you had the structure. And what's so impactful about that is that you can both leverage each other's strengths and create something that's really incredible, and just continue to grow together. So. So yep. yeah, we're going. So going back then, this was 2013. When you, yeah, um, I'm
0: fuzzy on my dates because I'm old. But yeah, it was around 2013, 2014. I mean, like I said, we added a new show pretty much every year. Yeah, right. And and has
1: there, has there been any other monumental events events along the way of like of that journey, or since you basically since 2013, where you kind of got into the rhythm of how to do this? And how to secure secure sponsorship and how to find hosts? Has it just kind of been a case now of we figured out what works and we're just doubling down and scaling?
0: No, you always have to stay ahead of the the competition. So from my marketing background, another quote, your listeners are going to get lots of good value out of this episode, (laughs) um, is to look for the open space. So if you've ever played team sports and um, you need to get open for the ball, you're waiting for that pass. You look for the open space, you go away from the crowd, right? Um, the same holds true when you're doing product or business development. Look for the open space. So Glenn was, he was the innovator. He would say, this is what's not happening in the equine industry right now. So this is where we need to be. There's a huge gap there. What's, what problem exists that no one has a solution for it at, at the moment? And what resources do we have to fill that gap, to solve that problem? We have a network of guests. We have mics. We have a distribution network, you know, channels for communication. So how can we stay one step ahead of this bell curve? Yep. And and I give Glenn a lot of credit for that. Now, I stepped away from Horse Radio Network for a couple of years because I went back into the corporate world. Right. Okay. So he continued to take some of these innovations and played around with them. Uh, moving to, so when Facebook, when the technology gave us the resources, he was right there with mm. it, starting to do live streaming. Um, you know, we would test out new apps that would come around and fail miserably. So you constantly have to be looking for that open space, right, even in podcasting. What kind of apps are these podcast type apps or
2: more equestrian business type apps?
0: Um, they were actually podcasting apps, like audio apps, Um I can't remember. So there was like, um, well, well, there's StreamYard now. I can't even remember what some of the names were. The The sound was just horrible. Yeah. What was the one that we used to do live? Um, I don't think
2: I've heard of any.
0: Blog Talk Radio. Blo- blog Talk? Blog Talk Radio?
1: Have not heard of it. That yeah. came
0: and went. That had like a, I don't know, a six-year lifespan um but it was every you know all the podcasters were doing blog talk and if you wanted to do something live you did blog right
1: talk. so it was kind of like the 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 precursor to the club room sort of thing yep yeah right
0: interesting yep. oh, the old they, yeah. they so i've probably, been in technology they were probably
1: just like you know 5 years too early with the um with the web's compression infrastructure It's like, Tom like from exactly.
2: my face like do it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Five years to use it. Proved that it exactly. worked,
1: proved that there was demand there, but the technology and infrastructure wasn't there to make it work properly.
0: Right, right. So we, you know, much to Glenn's credit, he played a lot with what what was new in the marketplace technology-wise and how could we use that to make the podcast better, reach more people, create more value. When right. you had stepped away to the corporate
2: world, were you always anticipating on coming back or was it something that just naturally –
0: you know, it's like you can actually leave the equestrian world. So
2: <laughs> how did, how did you uh,
0: come back into it? I left for the money. Um, I got handed a really nice cushy job and um, it was in the marine industry. It's was working with boat people and boat people and horse people are very similar. So funny. My, really, my,
2: Absolutely. My dad's a boat person. My mom's a horse person. Marri- <laughs> Married 30 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. You become completely immersed in your passion Um, You know, as unpredictable as horses are, boat people understand the unpredictability of the elements, the weather, the ocean. So you have a respect for this thing that you love and that that carries you, moves you forward through space and time. So even the physical adrenaline rush of boating, you know, sailing and riding is very similar. So uh, there's similar temperaments and personality types in each of those niche industries. So, but these boat people, they were, they were boring. They were not as passionate at the end of the day as horse people are, at least in my opinion. Yeah.
2: There's, there's no boat drama at the marina.
0: (laughs) Oh, there's boat drama. But I'm just like, all right, you, you don't have to worry about your boat getting dead if you leave it alone in the marina. Like if you moor it, it's not going to get dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) The chances, but you leave a horse alone, it will try to get dead. (laughs) So I what I missed the most was having people to talk to all day long about horses. I'm a freak of nature. I could ask my husband, I could talk 24-7 about all things horse. Right. I was sitting at a desk. I had no window. They loved my work. I got paid a crap ton of money. I had no horses. My screensaver was a picture of me fox hunting. <laughs> I'm like, I can't, I I can't. So I gave my notice and I came back to horse radio or to Glenn. And I said, you know, what do you think of me doing a new show? Stall and stable. It's a spinoff. It's something that we're not doing on horse radio. You are not doing, because I was separate from horse radio at this point.
3: Yeah, I had
0: stepped away. Right. I said, you guys aren't covering barn management, best practices and horse keeping. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, I really don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's, there's room for it. There's space for it. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this by myself. <laughs> so I put my independent hat on and I started to dig into the hardware, the recording, the post-production, the software, all of the things that I would need to produce, fully produce my own show. Wow. Right. He must've been kicking himself. He must not. Does he have horses? Glenn's a horse husband. He he drives. He has a, a little pony, his wife, Jennifer is the um expert and boy is she an expert so she and I were friends which is how Glenn and I met right I worked for Jennifer at a fox hunting stable back in 2006 or actually 2005 oh wow so I met her husband um so she was probably kicking him then like why are you turning this down this is exactly what we want to be listening to (laughs) Jennifer and Glenn understand each other she lets him make his own mistakes <laughs> and um and because we were so close because we were such good friends it was fine you know but the horse world is small enough where what I was doing started to overlap with what was happening at Horse Radio Network and well I say that it's like my alma mater you know you graduate from college, but you still have strong ties and connections to this place that you developed and that, you know, that loved you and that you loved back. So um, even though there were small modules of competitiveness, it became clear that we were destined to regroup again. And so Glenn and I talked about having Horse Radio put my show on their network and fold it back into there right
1: so so today are you are uh, are you just doing the hosting of stolen stable or do you are you also involved in running the horse radio network in at large?
0: I do not run horse radio network at all right now I am simply uh, just another show that is distributed on their network behind the scenes we still chat and we strategize a little bit, but I'm not in any official capacity right. working for h r n do you miss it no, because I get to be a part of – I get to be a part of it without the responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of having – But
2: I am a 22.
0: I'm a small business owner, so the Stolen Stable brand is starting to grow. And I'm responsible for getting my own sponsors, my own revenue, figuring out the direction of my my company now. And so I have my own set of stressors. But I don't need to carry those of, of Horse Radio. Those are Glenn's, Glenn and Jennifer's responsibilities now. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Absolutely. For those uh, of our listeners that uh, may may not follow your podcast, do you want to give us a quick overview of what Stall and Stable is and why? Like your most loyal listeners, why do they love it? Why do they tune in? What is the what is the what is the gold at the end of the rainbow when it comes to your podcast and the and the sort of topics that you cover?
0: I believe that horses, horses, children, animals are a reflection of the environment that we create for them, and Way too many horses get cast aside and end up living pretty horrible lives because uh, they can't combine with a human environment. They they can't function in the within the constraints of of what we set up for them. So, stall and stable the the mission the goal is to share ideas for happy horse keeping. What can we do to create an environment for a horse that makes it comfortable, healthy, happy, and then Ideally, they may make better riding partners for us. They're safer. We can stay with them longer. They cost us less money. So sharing different ideas, and it could be everything from new products that solve problems to how to conduct yourself in a commercial boarding facility. If you're a boarder, how to be a good boarder, how to be a good barn manager, how to be a good business owner, how many times you need to mow your pastures in order to keep them healthy. So it goes from the backyard personal a barn owner, a horse owner, all the way up to commercial boarding facilities and equine professionals. Um, so, and we cover some lifestyle stuff as well. It's not just practical information. It's those, the soft costs that are involved with horse keeping. How do you show up uh, as your best self? If you're going to ride, you know, um, how to not be cranky when you've got a staff of 10 people who are mucking stalls, turning horses out, getting you to competitions. So there's some soft stuff as well. So so what what happens in the stall is horse-centric. It's focused on the animal's well-being. What happens in the stable is more lifestyle. So that's a little bit more on the human side. Right. And um, I do a lot of business stuff because I have a strong business background. And I get a lot of messages from my listeners who either want to open up their own boarding facility or they want to build their own barn or bring their horses home. So I do a lot of consulting because I've made a lot of mistakes.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Is that a consulting Um, service that
2: you offer?
0: Yes. So I do business coaching and I also do farm evaluations and consults. So if you're going to buy a horse property or you want to put a barn on your property, I can tell you what major pitfalls to avoid. I'm not an architect. I'm not a landscape designer, I'm sort of a barn manager in your pocket type of person. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will go to an architect or a barn builder and say, I need 10 stalls. And when it comes time to decide how they want to configure the inside, a lot of people don't know where to put water buckets, how high to put them Mm -hmm. or where the prevailing winds are. Do you really want to have an open Do you want runouts? Okay. Well, if you put your hay nets or your hooks for your hay nets, near the door that's open to the prevailing winds well your horses may be out of the weather while they're eating their hay but that weather's going to blow right in Mm. so little things like that that people might not think about
2: that make a huge difference as someone who rides my goodness going so i really quickly like i had grown up in florida and we just had this old barn that we used to lease and it was just this Old barn, right? Where you had to pick up the water buckets and schlep it down the aisle and dump it and then bring it all the way back and reel the hose out and, you know, have to carry the hay from one end to the other and back again and just incredibly inefficient. So every morning barn chores were just a, a terrible endeavor that you just had to get through if you wanted to go ride. But now especially up in the northern virginia area where there are lots of new barns very modern designs and you see the automatic waterers and there's even components in the the ceiling where people can just simply drop down hay into the stall it's like wow that would have saved me
0: maybe a decade i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no you're you're spot on and and workflow you know again coming from a, a corporate background where i spent a lot of time in project management understanding the workflow is really important to creating or to designing your barn. And people don't count the steps from the first time they turn the lights on in the morning until, you know, night check. And where you put your latches, how your doors swing, um, all sorts of things that the the minutiae about barn design or property design. And, you know, we said this before, time really is our most precious commodity. So, and a barn owner, we're not making a lot of money. A trainer or equine professionals, we're not making a lot of money. We build by the hour. So if our barn tours take four hours, that's lost money. Yeah, It's worse than lost money because it's labor. We're, those are labor costs that we're incurring. So if I can make managing a barn and running a horse business less painful, <laughs> more profitable, then at the end of the day, the horses benefit from that because they get better quality care and the people benefit from it because they're less stressed and they can make horses their livelihood. It doesn't have to be the big sacrifice that it, it was when you were growing up or when I was growing up. Absolutely. So Does that
1: makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as far as, you know, the business that you run between the consulting services and the podcast do you see, do you make the majority of your income from the consulting services and you see the podcast as your, your sales tool to get inbound sales, or do you do, do you make money off the podcast as well? And it's kind of 50, 50.
0: It's now about 50, 50. It started out as just the podcast. Sure. And that, that's my advice. Do one thing and do it really well. Do something that you love. Because when you do what you love, you create, there's credibility, you create relationships with your listeners, with your, your audience, and it has to be genuine. You can't go out there and say, I'm going to do this podcast because I've got some widgets to sell. Yep. Plenty of people do that and plenty of people are successful. To me, as I said before, a podcast is the art of conversation. So the consulting side of the business and some of the passive income that I'm generating as well is, is an offshoot of the podcast. And that's, that's different than a lot of business models that involve podcasts. So, and it's growing, you know, it was just the podcast. It was just sponsorships and you have to be flexible enough. But I, I revisit my business model every year. Yeah. And I'm, I look at my profit centers, my revenue streams. I use my financial projections and assumptions for decision support, What do do I want my life to look like? Do I, am I happy with my work-life balance? Where can I be more efficient? Where can I make more money? Where can I save some time? So the consulting side of the business is actually the one that's starting to grow the most now because there are so many people who are hanging out their shingle. They want to build their own barns either at home because they're working from home now or because there's more disposable income and people are ready to, you know, take that leap and become business owners, start a boarding training facility, et cetera.
2: Yeah. So so was this consultancy service born from your listeners, hearing all the advice and the tips and all those better horse management skills, if you will. And then like we we want to get in contact with you to be able to help with our barn design, or were you always planning on doing those consultant type services from the get-go?
0: Nope, I did not plan to do any kind of consulting. Um, I never considered myself an expert and I still don't. I say the only thing I'm an expert at is talking about horses. But I have so much experience in the corporate world and my hands are always dirty. I've worked in barns, big barns, small barns. I was responsible for taking a barn that was in the red and making it profitable. You know, Going from why are we lunging all these horses and not charging? Why are we schooling horses and not charging? To people are canceling. Why don't we sell our lessons and packages, have them prepay? So I have so much experience. It'd be stupid for me not to share that with small business owners who are struggling. Yeah.
2: yeah. And and for the listeners you know, who aren't familiar, and I'd, I'd love to learn more about this too, is what is your writing background? Because I know you are an avid fox hunter, but did you start off fox hunting? Did you just happen to kind of make your way into the fox hunting world, which frankly, I sort of, I've dabbled my toes in the fox hunting world yeah. a little
0: bit, but- yeah. I'm a hot mess of That's riding. I, I have, I've been riding for 30 years and I still suck. <laughs> and, um, I, st- I mean, I, I took lessons once or twice here and there as a kid, I went to day camp and I got to ride a little Pinto pony named Apache. Um, you know, but it wasn't until, I don't know, probably 18 or 19. That I started taking lessons. Um, just hunt seat, basic walk, trot canner stuff. Went away to college. Um, I had, I had a pretty intense career as a lacrosse player. So that's how I got into college. And, um, so I didn't do horses for a number of years while I focused on lacrosse. Unfortunately, an injury ended my world cup dreams and, uh, didn't go to England. And so, uh, yeah, believe it or not, I'm the one whose injury put her on the back of a horse and the, so I started in a hunter jumper barn and I got tossed in the middle of winter one year and I broke my wrist and I broke it so bad that I had to have surgery. And I was like, well, this is not all right. I should not have come off that horse. Something is wrong. So I found a, a centered riding instructor who put me on a lunge line for three months straight. And I figured out what it meant to have an independent seat. Took away your stirrups.
1: <laughs> yeah. Is that a thing? Is it
0: and- oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing some of that, um, mostly riding dressage at that point. And then I got pregnant, had my daughter, and when she was six months old, I and I was also I had a corporate career. So when she was born, then I um when I'm on maternity leave I never went back. <laughs> I kept a couple of corporate clients and sort of did some freelance work on the side, but then I needed to get out of the house. And there was a hunt barn that was literally down the street from my house. And they said, we need some help. And I said, no problem. I'll come and feed the hunt horses in the morning before you guys head out. And, um, did you just, did you ride you know, their horses or did you have a horse that you boarded there too? I did not have my own horse at the time. I leased a thoroughbred, actually a thoroughbred Appaloosa cross. I don't even, that sounds lovely. he was pretty cool, but, um, You know, so I rode their horses, and they had a lot of ponies. So I'm little. So they're like, will you ride this pony? We don't know if it has any hunt experience. I'm like, okay, the pony has no hunting experience. I have no hunting experience. Sure. What could go wrong?
1: This will go swimmingly.
0: (laughs) Well, I figure we're close enough to the ground. We should be fine. (laughs) So I had never fox hunted up until I started working for this barn. And, um, in fact, I hadn't even galloped outside of a ring or cantered outside of a ring when I started at this hunt barn. And uh, but yeah, the first time out on pony horses, you name it, I was hooked. I was hooked. But also the place where I was living at the time was the former headquarters of the U.S. equestrian team. So it had a very long history and a, a, it was densely populated with horse people. So I had a mishmash of riding education. So I hunted a lot. I dabbled in some hunter jumper stuff, some dressage stuff, but because I was a mom, I could never really focus on hitting competitive milestones as a rider. Uh, my daughter just turned 18. I now have an off-track thoroughbred. You bet your buns. I'm going to get into the show. (laughs) 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 Did
2: did, uh, she get the bug too? Is she a rider?
0: She is a rider. Yep. Um, we started her in pony club when she was little and then she went and rode with my stepdaughter who is a show jumper. And so my daughter did um, IEA. She just graduated from college. And now she's looking to be a working student in whatever discipline will take her. Oh,
2: cool. Well, I know there are a lot of barns around us. So if, if they want to come down to Middleburg, Virginia, I'm sure we can find them something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She'll go anywhere as long as she can get out of Rhode Island. Yeah. <laughs> Rhode, yeah. Rhode Island this time of year is gorgeous. But, it is stunning. It's beautiful. And we live right near the ocean, so it's you, we get these beautiful afternoon breezes that smell like salt water and lovely. It's, lovely. we're pretty lucky. I know Taylor Swift has a house there on the Rhode Island beaches. <laughs> She's on the other side of the state. Rhode Island is a tiny state, but and it's there's so much water here that to get from it, as the crow flies it shouldn't take us more than 20 minutes to get from one end of the state to the other, but we have to go up and around so many rivers and bays to get to the bridges. Oh, wow. We're like, yeah, Taylor Swift lives over there. She can stay over there. It's too far for me to go and check it out.
1: <laughs> so, what does the um, what does the future look like for Stall and Stable and your business? Do you have a uh, any grand master plans of where you want to take it and what you want to achieve?
0: My grand master plan is to maintain the perfect work life balance, to do what I love, make a little bit of money, just enough to feed my horses, put my riding arena in but also to still make an impact. So I definitely want to or I am in fact I was just working on my business model this morning. Yeah, more coaching, more consulting, package up some of my knowledge, make it available for passive income for me. People can go up to the website, click something, download it and they have, you know, 10 years of my experience in their pocket type of thing. Sure. I will continue with the podcast. I am actually going to be looking for some new hosts, maybe to do some spinoff shows of my own.
1: Right. Does that mean you're going to be taking your show off the Horse Radio Network if you're going to be starting your own sort of mini network?
0: Nope, nope. I will stay on the Horse Radio Network if I do a spinoff of any kind. It will be a part of the HRN family.
1: Right. What is the value that you get out of being part of that?
0: Broader distribution. Right. Millions of downloads and listeners versus – Tens of thousands. Do they help you find so I have your a lot, but
2: sponsors as well?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So depending on the type of relationship that you have with HRN, they can either bring the sponsors to you, and there's a commission sharing, or if you bring the sponsors into the equation, your cut is a little bit more. So it's pretty much like any sales commission structure. Right.
1: So what I don't, what I, what I don't understand about the Horse Radio Network is when you say distribution, like all their shows are on the podcast apps anyway. So how are they pushing you distribution by being part of their network that you wouldn't just get anyway? Do they just, do they advertise your podcast on their other shows and encourage listeners? That yes. that's a, Is that the key part?
0: No, it's not the key part. It's multifaceted. Um, number one, even though there are all of our shows are on the same platforms, they have more listeners. Because they've been around longer, they've um, recruited more listeners,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? So we can all be on Apple Podcasts, but Horse Radio might have a hundred thousand listeners for a particular show, and the next guy might have ten or seven thousand or fifty thousand. So that's one. You know, um, they used to call it eyeballs. You know, in the in digital marketing, earballs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they have more of that. They have an app, so. Users can download the HRN app and all their shows get automatically pushed to their um, proprietary app.
1: Right. Ah, So that's a second
0: distribution method. We cross-promote shows. So Horses in the Morning is their biggest show, has the most listeners. They advertise my show. I might advertise the Dressage Show or Healthy Critters. So there's some co-op activities that are going
2: on. Do you have to pay for those co-op activities or is that an organic component of being a part of the Horse Radio Network?
0: For the most part, it's an organic part of it, but it depends on what you negotiate in your contract with them. Yeah.
1: So if I so for our listeners, um if I believed I one had the charisma to carry a podcast and I two had the dedication to do it week after week or month after month and do it correctly but I want to actually use it as a means of making some extra money to supplement my boarding barn, et cetera. Um, do you strongly encourage them to reach out to the horse radio network? You think it's a great place to start to try and get that business off the ground?
0: I strongly encourage them to reach out to me. Yeah. Okay. Cause I'll produce it. Okay. I can get it on the horse radio network for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a strong believer in boutique businesses. So I think, I like smaller because I think smaller provides better quality and I don't think there's enough junk out there. So and not that horse radio network is producing junk, but they're big and I want the business. Sure. I have a lot of knowledge and I can help produce it, tell you what to do with it so that you're more likely to get it onto the horse radio network because we get a lot of inbounds. I want to do a show. I know you do, but your show sucks. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but here, let me spend an hour with you telling what you should do. I'll help you figure out your life. Podcasting is not it. Um, but yes, I think that podcasting is a valuable channel for any equine business owner to reach their target audience. For a professional tra- and it dep- again, you have to go back to business planning and business modeling. Are you a trainer? Are you an eventing trainer with a, you know, uh, with a high-end competition barn? What value is a podcast going to give to your clients? Right. Uh, or, you know, wh- how do you see your business scaling? Is this what you're doing now? You're brick and mortar, you're hands-on, you're in the saddle. Do you see yourself 10 years from now taking your knowledge, packaging it up mm. and selling it as passive for passive income? Would you like to teach? So you... You really have to think of what value a podcast is going to bring to your customers and then what benefit it's going to give to you in thinking about what you want your life to look like mm-hmm. today, tomorrow, 10 years from now. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I'm but, curious if the if the people who come to you, they want to they want their own show. So are they looking to essentially become the next Joe Rogan where they want, they just okay. want the podcast. Or is it someone who is kind of like us where we have the Pegasus app? That's our technology company, but our podcast is our voice. So we're not really looking to, we don't want to be Joe Rogan. I mean, we'd like to be as good as Joe Rogan, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build our company.
0: So I don't know if it's so, which one. And, and you, you have the right balance. You, you, you got it because, um, There's a service component to what you're doing. You're a technology company, but you're serving the industry and you're building your brand. So the podcast is a valuable way for you to connect your brand and what you're trying to do with your target market, right? With your customers. Um, Yes, there are some people who want to be the next Joe Rogan. They'll buy all the equipment, they'll sit down and in less than a year, they pack it in because they realize it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. A lot of work, like you said, to do it correctly. You can't get to Joe Rogan without Joe Rogan's budget. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, The challenge is, so again, it's like any other marketing channel for a small business. Are you going to do print marketing? Are you going to do any kind of of out-of-home billboard stuff um, on the side of a bus? Is it all going to be digital? What social platforms are you going to use? You know, how is your, what are the demographics of your target of your target market. Like uh, you may find in looking at this stuff that a podcast is not appropriate. It's not going to get any value for your time Mm. because it is an investment of your time. I do think it's valuable if you have, if you're developing a brand that isn't local
2: Mm.
0: because right. Like if you're just, if you're just going to be, um, I don't want to say just. This is I don't mean to be dismissive, but if you're a trainer or you're a barn owner and you're you're working with clients in your neighborhood or in your state or in your community, a podcast isn't really going to be helpful for you. Right. But if you have a product that's crossing state lines or services that's reaching the globe then yes a podcast can help you as a distribution channel as a marketing channel and as a means for growing your brand
2: yeah or even just thinking of the trainers right and, and you're so you're so spot on with if if you're a, if you're a boarding barn and that's all you want to do is manage the horses that come into your barn and the people that come into it and you're not looking to expand or even expand your knowledge base then a podcast doesn't make any sense but if you do Have a ton of expertise, and you want to be able to monetize that, just as what you said, basically create this whole new revenue stream. Then, yeah, you can do so much on YouTube with podcasts. And I, I think I've discovered so many random channels from searching for, you know, like accounting, and then you'll find a guy (laughs) who's who's now has his own accounting channel. He was just really passionate about it, and and probably in the past he just had his own practice, but because he's so good at it and is so good at talking about it, he's expanded his audience. So now he's able to make his income, not just from the community that he serves, but probably international, probably not internationally because laws are different, but nationally.
0: So,
2: (laughs) um, so yeah, that that you bring up a really good point. Mm.
0: And there's, there is space in podcasting just for creative types who, you know, they're, People who have a lot of knowledge, like, of course, people who are good writers Mm -hmm. and then writers, you know, they create blogs because they're energized by the content creation part of it. They're creatives. So podcasters are also creatives. I mean, there's magazine publishing, there's books, there's audio. So you can say, you know what? I'm ride horses for a living, but man, I really like talking to people, or I really like getting guests on and figuring this stuff out and having these conversations, sharing knowledge. I or I was a teacher in a past life, Mm. and podcasting is a great way for me to tap back into that um, passion. I love to teach, so it's not that podcasting has to be um, something. it, It can be just it can be good in and of itself yeah.
1: yeah yeah how do you go about finding your guests and i say that because um one of the things that for listeners listening that a large like creating up r- r- the actual having the conversation and recording it is 10% of the work of publishing a podcast the other 90% is one producing it but two like finding guests and you reach out to them, they email you back, you email them, you then have to find a date that works. You have to send calendar invites, you need to set it up. And you've got to do that. If you're going to do that with routine, then you need to reach out to 10 times as many people as you're actually going to interview so that, you know, you have consistency and you can release a podcast on a consistent schedule. So it's a lot of work that a lot of people don't really appreciate, which is why you've said like, if it's not right for you, if you're only in your local area, because it is a lot of work. So how has your experience been with finding the guests? You're up to what now, like 80 episodes of and Stable?
0: Yeah, we're about 75. Yeah,
1: 75 episodes. episodes. So for 75 people that you've interviewed, you've probably reached out to 500 and had that communication with 500. So what's that process been like? And you know, how much work has that been involved with
0: So I have 75 guests for my show. Actually it's less than that because not all of my episodes involve guests. Some of them are solo. Right. Because there's I do lists, you know. These are these are the best practices I think you guys should implement. Um but 13 years with Horse Radio Network, yeah, I've reached out to a lot of people. It, you can follow the the route of like an editorial calendar like magazines do. What topics do we want to cover? What's seasonally relevant? What's relevant to activities and events that are happening, right? It's an Olympic year. There's probably a lot of podcasters who are reaching out to pro-level riders to have them on as guests. So um, it's a combination of what do I want to talk about? Because the more interested I am in it, the better conversation I'm going to have with the guest. Yeah, and it's going to be a better experience for my listeners. So that's number one. Number two, what's relevant and appropriate for the time frame that the episode is going to go live? You don't want to be talking to somebody about taking care of horses in the winter when it's 90 degrees out.
2: Right.
0: Um, so you have to take that into account. It was. It's easier now because of Facebook and all the social platforms where you can reach out to just about anybody through instant, you know, direct message. But crafting a good introductory email that gets your guests' attention, put a link to your show right there in the beginning. How do you craft a one paragraph rec- guest recruitment message that gets them paying attention to you? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of important. That's a skill that I've honed over the years. Um, showing up on time, being respectful. You, It's like any other business relationship when you create a quality professional relationship with your guest, they recommend you to their colleagues or to other people that they know, right? So if you want to interview an Olympian, you better be professional about it. And they will in turn recommend you and your show to others. Um, and it's not easy. There's, you know, there's crickets. You can send messages out and you get nothing. You know, you but you just, like you said, you have to cast a wide net and hopefully you can get a couple of valuable fish
2: mm, yeah, absolutely.
0: and have a plan, I, build a workflow around it. You know, I have a calendar. So early on, I'd say every Thursday from eight, eight to nine in the morning, I am just going to send recruitment emails. And so this is my guest recruiting. Yeah. And then I created a calendar, a schedule of recordings. So I have a recording schedule. These are the days and times I record. If you can't make it, I do not compromise. I will never compromise my recording calendar for a guest. Interesting. Yeah. Because that is a rabbit hole you can go down. That's very dark and very heavy. (laughs) So so
2: just in terms of, because it does require a lot of energy and preparation. So do you do that? Because you've, you've, you had mentioned before the work life balance is very important. So you've created this schedule that works really well for you. And to the quality of what you're putting out there. So as soon as you make it a flexible endeavor, do you think that that affects the quality and your work-life balance?
0: Very much so, very much so. And the rigidity of the structure that I've set up allows me to be flexible when it's really important. Mm. I'm the judge of that, right? So I've got this workflow that um, is very smooth. It's very reliable, When I really need to deviate from that workflow, I can do that without messing it up. Right. Right. Um, How many recordings will you typically do in a week? No more than one. Well, no. Two sometimes. But that's also because I can get overwhelmed very quickly. So I try not to have – I do have some that are in the can. Like sometimes I'll book somebody and I'll record – but I don't publish that episode right away. Mm. It might sit for a couple of weeks. Sure. Yeah. I remember. So two, two is the maximum because there's a lot going on. You're, there's, you're recording, you're editing, you're talking to people, you're strategizing, you're working with your sponsors, you're working with clients. So right. do, two is good. Do you
2: have, um? well, especially with all the other businesses that you're doing too with the coaching and... Um, you know, the consulting and then the building of the arena in your backyard. So yeah, two, two's a lot, especially as we talked about, it. it takes so much that goes into it. And then afterward, but I was wondering, cause we get this question a lot, which is, so people will be passionate about riding horses and they'll have say a corporate job and they want to get into the horse world. Some in some capacity, like, or, or maybe they already are starting to, But they're struggling and they don't know how to really differentiate themselves or jump into it, but they are certain that they want to be involved in the equestrian space. Do you get that question a lot? And if
0: so, like, what do you tell them? I do. I do. The people who come to me are either have a lot of um, corporate or business experience, but they don't know how to integrate that with the equestrian industry. So I'm like, okay, let's do a crash course and what it means to work with horse people, because we're crazy. And then on the other side is there's a lot of horse people who have no business experience. So, um, I, I tell them that you need to educate yourself. I, I mean, taking someone who's a horse specialist, a, a horse professional, and introducing business concepts to them is easier because it's a matter of them just taking the time to learn it. Or like any other coaching, you sit down, you show somebody, what they need to do, you walk them through it, and then you send them on their own, right? They come back to you when they need some tune-ups or some help here and there. When someone's going from the corporate world or the business world, and then they want to become a horse professional, that's more, believe it or not, um, psychological counseling (laughs) because they're usually leaving a good salary behind and benefits. So they're trading the stability, financial stability and structure for joy, just pure bliss. And at first it's really hard for them or someone to say, I'm in the corporate world and I hate it and I want to be a working student or I want to be an apprentice or I want to work for some big name trainer. And then they see how much that big name trainer can actually pay them. And they're like, no, I, I can't do that. What I say to them is, and this might not be true for everybody, but I found it to be true for me and for many people like me. What you earn in the corporate world can never buy the kind of pure happiness and contentment that being fully immersed in horses can bring you. So it depends on why you do horses to begin with. Mm -hmm. Some people need a sense of accomplishment. They need to win blue ribbons. Some people need the adrenaline rush. They just want to get on and yahoo. Some people and use horses as a substitute for children or other relationships. Mm. So if you're leaving a career in one area and you want to make horses your career, you need to understand what it is about horses that motivates you. Why do you do horses? Because the business that you choose to be in, in the horse industry needs to provide you with that satisfaction, that contentment that you're trying to buy with a corporate salary. Mm. Does that? Yeah, well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You get that. Mm. yeah, so it's a little woo-woo, but it's, it's real. Like that's that's how it goes.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I think that's um, a great place to to finish it for this week. If For people who want to get in contact with you, uh, are interested in one, your podcast, or two, uh, getting your consulting services, where can they find you?
0: Stall and stable com three words all lowercase stallinstable dot I'm all over there
1: right you you got the you got the domain that's fantastic
0: I got the domain yeah okay, well she
2: she's yep. she's the pioneer in the podcast space
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so stallinstable I'm also on Facebook Instagram I don't do TikTok or I don't even do Twitter anymore um, just facebook and instagram because it's pretty easy. Oh, Fantastic.
1: Man. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate your yeah, time. Yeah, it
0: was lovely to meet you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Absolutely. Great. Have a great Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.